0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrictchurch. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrictchurch. At Amen. Good morning, Church. My name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here at the District, and I uh, just want to welcome you today and uh, and also just kind of say thank you to those who came out this weekend to. Uh, To serve in our neighborhood cleanup and so we we did a lot going down uh, a couple of the streets around here and just picking up trash meeting a few neighbors and just had a good time serving the Lord as we serve the city and so that was uh, again just thank you for those who came out for that Uh, we'll be doing another one towards the end of June as well and so if you missed this one um, and want a little bit warmer weather hopefully no rain then then come to that one as well Uh, but we'll be doing that again Today we are kicking off a new series. And so if you're new with us, visiting with us today, uh, great time to jump in and kind of understand a little bit about what we believe as the district church because that's kind of what we're walking through over the next couple of months is is really just a meta-narrative series. And what I mean by that is uh, breaking down the Bible into Christian story, Christian belief, and Christian formation. And so what is the Bible saying to us? And when I mean meta narrative, I'm talking Genesis to Revelation. We're going to break it down into really four books and just walk through the Bible and just kind of lay out what is it saying? What is the story of the Bible? And then the second thing we want to look at is what then do we believe? If this is what the Bible is saying, if this is what God is revealing to us. What then are we to believe about the story? What are the doctrines? What are the studies that we are to put together in order to believe about it? And then that leads into formation. Because it's not enough to just know the story, and it's not enough just to believe the story to be true. It does something to us, it transforms us, it changes us, it molds us on a daily basis. And so, how does it then inform our daily lives uh, so that we are living out the story of God as we are also living out our beliefs about God and what it is that He has for us? And so, the way that we're going to kind of move through this is going to really be in four big buckets. So, there's going to be creation, there's going to be fall. There's going to be redemption, and then there's going to be restoration. And so those are the four buckets that we're going to pull from for our entire meta narrative series. And now, again, we're not walking through verse by verse every uh, book of the Bible, all 66 books, all chapters, all verses. We're not doing that. We're going to be kind of doing a flyover of the entire book over the next couple of months so that you can at least generally be able to go to someone else and say, this is what the Bible story is. This is how God exists. This is how he creates. This is how man fell and and broke all that God created. This has been God's plan of redemption, how he has been fixing what we broke and how he ultimately sent Jesus, the God-man. Here's why he came. And then ultimately, Jesus is going to then come back to, to take all of us as the church to rule and reign with him for eternity. That is the like 30-second nutshell of what we're going to be looking at, but we're going to kind of land the plane a couple of times and look at some specifics that we believe are, again, some of the high points of the story, belief, and formation for us over the coming months. And again, the way we're going to break this down is we're going to look at um, Christian story, belief, and formation on a specific topic or point. And then we'll move to the next one, and we'll look at story, belief, and Formation, and then we'll move on to the next one and look at it. So we're not going to go through the whole story first and then come back to belief and then come back to formation. We're going to do all three in the span of three weeks or four weeks, depending on that specific topic, if it needs more time in the story. And today is one of those. And so today what we're going to be looking at, as he just read, is Genesis 1.1. So it's going to be real easy for you if you have your Bible. Uh, open it up. First book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, first verse of the Bible, Genesis one one. And this one, we are going to spend two weeks on the story part of it because this is a loaded verse. All right, it's it might not look at it from just surface level, but it is a very loaded verse uh, that's going to require a little bit more attention to it and detail to it uh, before we move on to some other verses as well. So we'll spend today looking at, in the beginning, God. And then next week, we'll look at created the heavens and the earth. And then the next week after that, what are we to believe about that? And then the week after that, how does that inform our lives on a daily basis? And you'll get some mixture of that in every single sermon. um, But we'll highlight specifically today, what is it that we want to know about this God? So you're in there, Genesis 1-1. And I already read it, and so what I want to do is we're just going to practice a little Bible memory for you right now, all right? I already read it. Jordan read it. Uh, you've already heard it. You already know it. So let's just say it out loud together, all right? Without looking, Don't. they're not going to put it on the screen yet. Don't look at your Bible. Let's just say it together, all right? Ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Good job. Like, I was... Actually, I, mean, I don't know if my standard was a little bit lower. I was expecting it a little to not be that good, but good job. Like, we can work with that. Um, so it's just my confidence in us as, as a church. Um, so you can go ahead and check off Bible memory today. You don't have to worry about that anymore. We just did that. So here's what we're going to do. In the beginning, God. Now, a lot to work with here, okay? Because, again, this is... This is trying to not only define time, but it's also trying to define God in the next 35 minutes, Lord willing, 35 minutes. And so we, will, um, we have a lot to cover. So this is talking about time, the start of time. Now listen, you and I are finite beings, right? We're finite beings. So we cannot comprehend anything that is outside of time. When we hear in the beginning, that is natural to us. Because everything to us has a beginning. But when you start looking at the idea that there was something before there was a beginning, we can't comprehend that because of the fact that we're finite. We don't even have any language to actually dive into how we would describe something existing before there was time. Because even before is a measure of time. It's a signature of time. So we don't have anything to really understand what this looks like. But at the same time, because we are finite beings, we know that for us, everything in our lives are dictated by time. Everything. I mean, you just go through the questions. How are you? We tend to respond with a time signature. Well, right now, things are going well for me. Or I'm in a good season. I had a good week. Like We're measuring everything based on that. And then when you start just entering into conversation with somebody and the facts that you want to know about other people also always has to deal with time. When did you graduate? When did you get married? What are you doing after this? What time is lunch? Like We were measured by all those things. How old are your kids? Everything kind of has a beginning. And so we're drawn to or pulled into time signatures. And we just measure everything based on time signatures. And it's why the Ecclesiastes, Solomon as he's writing this, shares for us In verse 1, and if you, again, have a church background, you'll know this passage. And if not, if you grew up a hippie, then you'll know this based on uh, the the musical band, The Birds. Uh, But anyways, here's what it says for us. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to steal or heal a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace, to everything, turn, 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 and it goes on. But there's a time for everything. And to us, again, as created finite beings, we know nothing but the existence inside of time. And so that's why it's hard for us when we look at this passage to think of anything outside of it. To think of anything outside of it. But what we see here in the beginning, our beginning, God. So he is he he exists and and again what does it look like was it was there this space before time again i'm using time signatures we don't know we don't know all we know is god god he is and so that's where i want to kind of spend the majority of our time I'm not trying to help you kind of unpack how it works in this relationship between God and time and the beginning. I mean, the only illustration or article that I kind of ever really saw that, that draws a little bit of relationship to this would be the relationship between an author and a story. And so you, you have, let's take C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, for example. The Chronicles of Narnia do not exist without C.S. Lewis previously existing, Right? They don't. Unless he sits down and writes the story, the story does not exist until he sits down and creates it and writes it. Now the story then begins when he starts writing it out. But he existed before that. Now again, that's C.S. Lewis. He's a finite being whatnot. whatnot. So, so it begins to break down when you get down into the very details of it. But that's really kind of the only way that we can comprehend it is that he is and then created everything that we are. He is. Now, God is not. He is not codependent upon creation. He's not codependent upon creation. Where, for example, some people would say that Narnia made C.S. Lewis a household name. That Narnia is what made him popular and wealthy and, 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 and continue on going down the stream. Creation does nothing for God in benefiting him more than he already is. It doesn't add value to him. It's not, as some theologians say, God was just kind of bored and existed and therefore created us for a relationship. Like, he is self sufficient. He exists as he is without needing creation to provide anything for him. He exists. God is eternal. Or, as Jesus says, I am the existence of God. So we have this eternal creator outside of time. And so the first point that I want you to know is just simply this. God is eternal. He's eternal. We're not. We're finite. He's eternal. And the Bible will declare throughout the entire narrative that God is the only one or only thing that has no beginning. And because God alone has no beginning, everything that exists has its origin in God himself. It's found in God himself. And again, as I mentioned, he didn't create us for relationship, as if he was lacking relationship, all right? God is, God exists, but he exists also in an eternal community. And so I want to show you this little graphic here uh, known as the Trinity. And In the Bible, you actually find this interesting. The Bible nowhere uses the term Trinity. But the, the Bible implies all throughout it that God does exist as a singular God in three distinct persons. A singular God in three distinct persons. And so this graphic is helpful. Again, not exhaustive, but it is helpful in the sense that our God that we serve exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, they are completely distinct in themselves. For example, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are their own individual, existing, distinct persons. Yet they are all God. So when we refer to God, we're referring to the Holy Trinity as they exist in perfect unity, yet distinct And we see this all throughout Scripture. You see the Father referring to himself as God. You see Jesus referring to himself as God. You see the Holy Spirit being sent as God. They they are God, yet exist in eternity, in communion with one another, enjoying one another, glorifying one another. And so they are self-sufficient. They don't need creation to glorify them. They don't need creation to add value to them. They don't need anything from us. They are completely codependent, self-sufficient, independent of anything that creation has to offer. And so we need to know that. Because, for example, when we kind of use verses like Isaiah, where Isaiah says, the Lord asks these questions. And he's not asking these questions because he needs to learn, as we'll see here in a minute. But he's asking these questions to draw people to himself in order to send them out to be missionaries. And so he says, he asks this question, Who will go for me? Who shall I send? It's not as though he's needing somebody because he's lacking. And then you've got Isaiah down there going, Hey, Lord, (laughs) Uh, I see that you're in need of some help and I've got you. All right. So here I am. Send me. Like that's not the case. All right. Rather, what we actually see is he he pulls him in, draws him in, sends him out to literally decrease a ministry by about 90%. So he's not like the best choice to send out as far as the successful rate would go. God doesn't need us to serve him, doesn't need us to worship him, doesn't need us to glorify him, doesn't need us to do his work. But what he does choose to do, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is he invites us into the ministry that he is doing. He invites us in to play a part. It's like going to work with Dad. Going to work with Dad. And we get to experience all the joys that are had in doing ministry the way that God sees fit. So the first thing to know is that God is eternal. has always existed in perfect unity, in perfect trinity, in perfect communion as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this leads into three characteristics, three attributes that I want to describe about God, who this God is, what God is. And again, these are not exhaustive. These are not the only attributes of God. These are not the only things that we need to know about God. But I think these are, uh, if you were to say kind of big buckets that then spring forth for us all of the attributes of God, I think these are the three main buckets. I think these are the three main ones that if, if this was all you knew about God, then you would have a right understanding about what his nature is, what his character is, and what he is able to do as Lord of your life. What he's able to do as Lord of your life. And so I'm going to give you the theological term for these, and then I'm going to kind of break it down for Dwayne Common Sense um, that I need being from, from good old Tennessee. So the second point that I want you to see here today is that God is omnipotent. And so if you got a church background, you know I'm going to go with all the omnis, all right? It's the three omnis. God is omnipotent. And what omnipotence means is that God is in total control of himself and he's in total control of his creation. He is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. That's what omnipotence means. Scripture affirms God's omnipotence by saying that God does whatever he pleases to do. We see this in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. This is specifically what it says. We see this in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So as God is saying, as I speak out my word, and as I speak out my will, as I speak out my purpose, it will not come back void. It will not return empty. It will accomplish everything that I send out for it to accomplish. That is all powerful. Like, you cannot make statements like that, right? Like, not one of us in this room can make a statement that what I will go out and do today. Whatever that plan is will go exactly as I deem fit and it will execute exactly how I want it to execute and it will return for me exactly what I want it to return to me. No, no one in this room has that type of control. Not one person. And if you think you have that kind of control, have a child. <laughs> Completely gone. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Jeremiah prays, Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for him. I think about things that are hard for us. Like with no tools, push a nail into a wooden board. Just try it. With no tools, push a nail into a wooden board. Plant a tree without a shovel. Drink water without a cup. These are simple, mundane things that, again, we take for granted every single day, but we have to make them easier for us by creating tools to make them easier. Because it's hard for us to even do those types of mundane things. Yet we see in Scripture that nothing is too hard for God. And I just wish that we would just contemplate that one little truth on a daily basis. That like whatever it is that we're walking through, if we just repeat it to ourselves, nothing is too hard for Him. Nothing is too hard for Him. This is the truth about God. This is what the Bible is saying about Him. Nothing is too hard for Him. His word is never void of power, so when He speaks, everything in creation obeys Him. Now, of course, creatures, creation, does and do disobey Him in one sense. And that is the essence of sin, that second bucket, the fall. But God has control and power even over our sinful actions. And that is a hard truth. That is a hard truth. And that is one that I'm not pretending to fully understand, but we're going to tackle it. We're going to tackle it in the coming weeks when we look at the fall of how God remains sovereign, how He remains good, how He remains how He remains just even in the midst of evil sin and the fact that He not only has control over it, but ordains and even wills some of it. In such a way that those who perform the evil acts are held accountable to it, and yet God is not. I mean, that makes you scratch your head a little bit. But yet the Scriptures are clear. Look at Psalm 105, 24-25. And the Lord made His people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate His people, to deal craftily with His servants. God turned people's hearts to deal hate towards people? How does that work? We see in Genesis 45, 4-8 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Terrible thing happened. Joseph's brothers, if you know anything about the 12 tribes, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob, if you know anything about them, Joseph was one who maybe had an issue with bragging one time or another. His brothers hated him for it. So they literally beat him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery into Egypt A bunch of evil acts, a bunch of sinful acts. Joseph finds himself in Egypt, serves, does what the Lord has called him to do, rises in the ranks to where he becomes second over Egypt. And not only that, but then is able to store up enough wealth and enough resources that when a famine hits his 11 brothers, they come to Egypt looking for help. And Joseph is kind to them serves them, provides for them. And this is literally what the scriptures say about that. He says in Genesis 50 verses 18 through 20, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant that evil for good. God used evil for good. There's control there. There's power there. There's ordination there. He's ordaining these things and making them happen. And then really it all comes to fruition when Jesus is at the cross. And sermons that are preached about Jesus Christ being at the cross have everything to do with these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees, who are coming and yelling, crucify Him. It is clear that they're being held accountable for murdering Jesus. Yet Jesus at the same time is saying, no, 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 I'm not being murdered, I'm laying my life down. But then at the same time, we've got God in heaven with His wrath towards Jesus, crushing Jesus on the cross as He's pouring it out towards Him. If you were to try this in in a courtroom, who's at fault for the death of Jesus? But yet we see this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him, but it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We see in Acts 4, 27-28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's all-powerful control and sovereignty is not just over what is righteous, good, and holy, but also is over what is evil, sinful, and debaucherous. That's the kind of God that I want to serve. Is one that lets nothing slip through His grip. That lets nothing go unchecked. But yet, is fully in control of everything that we see and comprehend. Now, I'm going to actually go way more depth and detail about that when we look at the fall. So let's keep moving here with God's power. Often we infer from these passages that God can do anything, but that also isn't quite reflective in the full biblical teaching. There are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot himself conduct evil. He can't do it because he's holy, because he's perfect, because he's just, because he's good. He cannot do evil. He also cannot do things that are logically contradictory. And what I mean by that are those kind of philosophical questions that you asked in college. Can God create a rock that he cannot move? No, because that's logically contradictory to God's nature. I used to say, yeah, he can create a rock too large that he cannot move, but then he would move it. That's what I used to say, but really, it doesn't make sense. Similar to the fact that, like, God cannot wear shoes. Now, if you're like, well, Jesus, sandals. All right, I know some of you were thinking it. But you're also then pulling in this hypostatic union, the fact that, God, that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully, 100% man, So yes, the God-man, 100% fully man Jesus, can wear shoes. But the invisible God cannot wear shoes. It just logically doesn't make sense. It's contradictory to itself. So we need to rightly understand God. And again, we're trying to understand an incomprehensible God. All right, We're trying to visibly kind of create something in our minds of an invisible God. And the only way that we can ever fully do that is by just looking at Jesus Christ himself. Because He is, as Scripture says, the visible representation of an invisible God. Visible representation of an invisible God. So how should we define God's omnipotence more precisely? I think the most helpful definition of God's omnipotence is this. That He has complete and total control over everything. That's simply it. He has complete and total control over everything. This includes the smallest details of the natural world, like the falling of a sparrow or the number of hairs that grow on your head. You see those in scriptures, Matthew 6 and Matthew 10. But even the events we call random that we ascribe to chance are also really God at work. Take Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And if you're like, I have no idea what a lot is being cast... Just think some type of like rolling the dice, just gambling, kind of whatever it is. Even those decisions on how they land are decided by the Lord. They're decided by the Lord. So if you want to take up gambling thinking that that's going to be your prosperous way to health, wealth, and prosperity, go ahead, try it. But the decision is ultimately going to end up in the hands of the Lord. Now, I'm not prescribing you to start gambling, okay? So don't hear me actually saying that. I'm just saying that nothing happens without God ordaining it. Nothing happens outside of his control. Every decision falls through him and from him. God rules not only the important events of human history, but also the lives of individual people. So we tend to think of God sitting on a throne, distant, just kind of orchestrating all of humanity, which kings come into place, which powers come in, which emperors or empires rise and fall. We kind of think of him in those those refrains, And sometimes for us, we think it's safe for us because it's distant from us. Like, I like to serve God as long as He's distant from me. Because then He doesn't have to know me. He doesn't have to see me. He doesn't have to know the things that are underneath that I wish He didn't see. But the reality is, and this actually should be more comforting to you than, than um, damning for you. That He sees everything. That He knows everything. And we'll get to that here in a minute. But that He's intimately in control of every detail of your life. So much so that Psalm 139 says that He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knits you together in your mother's womb. We see in Acts 17 that He also determines the allotted periods in which you reside. What that means is you've never moved anywhere without God determining where you were going to end up. You're like, no, 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 no. I chose which college I went to. Yeah, God determined that too. Well, I chose who my spouse was going to be. Yeah, so did God. And how do we know? Because it's where you are right now. Simply that. He allowed it. He willed it to happen. How do we know that? James 4, 13 through 15 says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will marry so-and-so. If the Lord wills, we will live and so-and-so. If the Lord wills, we will conduct this business or own this business or create this business or whatever it looks like. If the Lord wills. All of it is flowing through His control." His all power. And so we believe in Christ because He has appointed us to eternal life. Even our salvation is in his control. Our salvation is in his control. And you're like, hold up a second. All right. I I don't come from a background where it is in my control, or or it is in his control. It, I come from a background where I choose this or I. Uh, I follow this, or I pursue this, or I believe. And what I want to make sure here is that we're giving credit where credit is due. We're giving credit where credit is due. Even if you choose, again, I'm okay with you saying I chose Christ, just as I'm okay with you saying Christ chose me. Because at the end of the day, what we see is that both of those decisions, whether Christ chose you or you chose Christ, and if you have anything, know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism, because I know in our church we represent both fields of it. But what we can agree upon is this, and I'm just going to read the scriptures to you on this. Acts thirteen forty eight. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So before they believed, and you can either say that was because they chose God or God chose them, there was an appointing happening from the Lord. There was a control over them being appointed unto salvation. We believe in Christ because He opened our hearts to believe. We see this in Acts 16, 14 through 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by the Apostle Paul. So think about it in a worship setting. Apostle Paul's preaching and has preaching and sharing the gospel. Lydia, sitting in the audience, is hearing the gospel... And as she is hearing the gospel, wanting to choose God, wanting to worship God, God himself in his control and his authority and his power opened her heart. Opened her heart. And she believed and was baptized all of her household and worship was conducted. And then the planting of the church in Philippi happened right out of her house. Planted it right out of her house with a Philippian jailer and then a, a demon-possessed girl. And that's the start of that church plant. And this is universal. This is universal. We also see this in Philippians 1:29 when he's later writing it back to that church that was planted. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So we're appointed, He's opening our hearts, and not only that, but He's granting to us the ability to believe. The ability to believe. God's in control of this. That provides me so much comfort. So much comfort that I can't mess up believing. Because He's ordaining this. He's in control and He's all-powerful. His power is universal. It controls everything in the universe. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What's all things? All things. He's working it out according to His will. That's the God that we serve as one who's omnipotent. That then flows into His omniscience. God. ...is omniscience. And that means that He is the ultimate standard of truth and falsity. So that His ideas are always true and thus makes Him all-knowing. So we serve a God who is all-powerful and we serve a God who is all-knowing. Listen to this in Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power, all power. His understanding, His knowledge is beyond measure... So we can't even measure the standard of his knowledge and, and how far it goes. It is beyond measure. He knows everything. We see this in John twenty one seventeen, after Peter has uh, denied Christ three times, and then Christ visits him 40 days later, makes lunch for him on the side of a beach, and, he, and literally just begins asking him questions. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And Peter responds with some good theology here. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Get to work. Get to work. Don't deny me anymore. Feed my sheep. Jesus knows everything. It often mentions that God knows detailed happenings on earth even in the future. We see this in Psalm 139. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Whatever that next sentence I'm about to say, He already knows what it is. Whatever you're going to say tomorrow, He already knows what it is. And the beauty in that is that He still saved you. He still saved you. God's omniscience is based on His authority for He is the supreme judge of all things. He's the ultimate standard of what is true and false. Not false. Not only does God know what is true, but He's also the very nature of truth. When we say all-knowing, He is the very nature of what is to be known. Not only in Him, but in all creation. Because He created. You want to know creation? You want to know beautiful design? Know God, because it it sprung forth from Him. I mean, think about it. Right now, we are in such a debacle when it comes to gender wars. When it comes to trying to identify and determine or define what we are as a humanity. What we are is male or female. And what culture is trying to do is trying to define it from creation. It's just looking at creation and then trying to make sense of creation itself. But if you're trying to make sense of creation without going to creator, you will never fully make sense of creation. You're just going to keep redefining it and trying to redefine it and trying to create from creation. It doesn't work that way. That would be like going and trying to read Chronicles of Saying like, you know what, this is what I think really is happening here. When C.S. Lewis is right there next to you and he's like, no, that's not not what I meant. (laughs) Ask the author what his beautiful design was in creation and then create a definition for it. Let him define what is because he is the standard of truth and falsity. He is the standard by which we know everything that is known. God's knowledge is a precious blessing to God's people. That's why it says in Psalm 139, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's too, I get overwhelmed by the knowledge that I see in God as I seek Him out and pursue Him, to know Him and to be known by Him. God's knowledge of us pursues us wherever we may go to heaven, to the grave, to great distances, to dark places. We see that in verses 7 through 12 of Psalm 139. He knew us when He was forming us in our mother's womb, verses 13 through 16. He knew even back then every day of our lifetime on earth. God knew because He's all knowing. And honestly, for some wicked people, like, should well be terrorized by this doctrine that God knows everything about every detail of our life the psalmist but to the psalmist God's knowledge of us is wonderful and good and he prays that God will draw on this knowledge to lead him to repentance and forgiveness that yes the knowledge can be condemning of us But it's also that knowledge that leads us to repentance and leads us to the kindness of God as he is mapping out the entire redemptive plan of our story. At every moment, God knows every thought and every mind of all 7 billion people alive right now. While also at every moment, God knows every leaf that falls, every flower that blooms, every star that explodes. There's nothing that escapes his omniscience and that leads us to his omnipresence. Last point here. Omnipresence means that since God's power and his knowledge extend to all parts of his creation, he himself is present everywhere. He is present everywhere. I like to define God's omnipresence as God is present at all times, everywhere in his fullness. God is present at all times, everywhere in his fullness. To say that God is present is to say that he is here with us. Like he's really here with us right now. He does not have a body. He is immaterial. But he is here present. And listen, just to offer some clarity to one of the most misused verses, I believe, in all of history, one of the most misused verses in all of history, God is not waiting for two or more to gather in order for his presence to come among you. Like it's just not happening. I know if you're a worship leader or have that like background, like I know you've said that thousands of times. You get up on the mic, where two, two or more are gathered. He is in our presence. God is not at the window waiting for two people to come into the room. Like he's not waiting for Ransford to show up in order for us to conduct an elder meeting. Now, maybe sometimes if Josh gets there second, he's waiting for the more to come and then come into the presence. But what I'm trying to say is like, when you are by yourself, God is everywhere at all times in His fullness. He's there with you, all right? And maybe, maybe, I'll go to Matthew 18 when we get to the redemptive history part of it and dive into what the two or three or more are gathered actually means because it really is only focusing on church discipline and them agreeing on something to where then God is basically saying, I'll affirm it. But outside of that, He's with us. We can come in here one person and have a worship night. You can do that. He's everywhere in His fullness at all times. Scripture's answer is that God is present. He's present. His omnipresence is a presence both in place and in time. And again, Psalm 139 indicates that God is present in every place. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he resides. And and the thing about this is, is, and I mentioned this, I believe, in the Easter sermon, is that places and spaces matter to God. Places and spaces matter to God. He is everywhere at all times in his fullness, but des- decides at times to intervene. His special presence, where it is unsafe for humans to be. What I mean by that is, in the Old Testament, you see times where he uses his presence to reside within an ark of a covenant, and and he even gives clear, just like clear, don't touch the ark or you'll die. And someone touches the ark and then they die. Like there's there's special moments in time where he puts his presence in somewhere and dictates something to not happen. We see this in the tabernacle, in the temples, where there is a veil put up because there is the Holy of Holies. This is where God, again, being on the other side of the veil is there, but also offering his presence unhindered on one side of it and saying it is not okay for you to come over to that side yet. It's not okay for you to be in the full presence of God. Why? Because we're sinners. It's as simple as that. We are sinners. We cannot be in the full presence of God while being sinners. We die. I like guess just the wages of sin is death. We die in the full presence of God unless unless God through His supernatural power, through the gospel and the work and life of Jesus Christ, comes to reside in us as forgiven sinners. And now with the presence of Christ taking up space in us, taking up our body as a temple, if you will, allows us to then walk through that veil that was torn when He died on that Good Friday. That's the only possible way for God in His eternity and to be in all places at all times in its fullness, for us to enter into that is through Jesus Christ, is through Jesus Christ. And this is really one of the things that we see all throughout Scripture, and primarily as God is sending the God man, Jesus Christ to earth, to come to this place, what's one of the names given to Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time? What's one of the names given to him? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. The biggest thing you need to take away from his omnipresence is just simply that one piece. God's with us. He's with us. And with us doesn't, doesn't just mean that he's like kind of present, it means that he's with us, alongside us, for us. And not for us in the sense of like health, wealth, prosperity. But he's for us in the sense that he is going to complete what he has begun. The work of transforming you from sinner to saint. The work of taking you from your fallen self to your resurrected self, which is becoming like Jesus Christ every single day. What he is doing as he is with you every moment when you wake up, when you leave your house, when you're in your car, literally... You're never alone. God is with you and He is transforming you at every single moment from one degree of glory to the next. He's with us. And what that should do is is, is push up or encourage or exhort our pursuit of Him, our abiding in Him because of the fact that we can take away from this that God who has all power, God who has all knowing, who knows everything everything that is in existence, and who is everywhere at all times in his fullness is literally with me everywhere that I go so that whatever it is that I'm dealing with on a daily basis, whether it's my own sin or whether it's sin that is coming towards me or that it's the collateral damage of being in a fallen world and therefore I'm experiencing death and pain and anxiety and depression and just just difficulties of thorns and thistles throughout creation of of, of friendships that are going awry or marriages that are struggling or whatever it is disobedient children you throw it in the books whatever it is I know walking with me is an all powerful God an all knowing God and an all present God who is with me he's with me and he is he just is and as Jesus says I am that nothing surprises him Therefore, we can go to him as soon as anything happens to us. God, did you see that coming? Yes. (laughs) God, did you know? Yes. God, can you? Yes. Because that is who he is. And because of that, we can rest in knowing that as Romans 8 says... God is working out all things for those who love him or called according to his purpose. He's working out every detail in your life right now because it's not out of his control and it's not beyond his knowledge and it's not outside of his grasp when it comes to his presence. He's working out all things for those who love him or called according to his purpose. The omni-attributes are ways of speaking really just one word. It's his lordship. It's his lordship. You take the all-power, you take the all-knowing, you take the all-presence. That makes him lord. That makes him lord. The Bible literally uses the term lord to describe God over 7,000 times. 7,000 times. That means if you were to just meditate on one verse a day that references God as Lord, it would take you 20 years to exhaust that list. But that's who he is, Lord. And here's the question. Is he the Lord of your life? And honestly, the answer is the same for everyone who's alive. Is he the Lord of your life? The difference is whether or not he is the Lord of your life by grace alone, through faith alone, in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, or he is Lord of your life by wrath and judgment. He is the Lord of your life because, again, he is God. Nothing escapes him, right? He is God. That's why Romans 14, 10 through 12 says clearly, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. God will either say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, for believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's it. Or he will say, depart from me for I never knew you for not believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's one of those two categories. He is the Lord of everybody. It's just whether or not he's the Lord of you by the grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ or he's the Lord of you by wrath because we never believed in Jesus. We never believed in Jesus Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for these attributes. Because God, oh, it it brings us so much peace and comfort to know that the God we serve is one who is not determined by time, I mean, God, you are literally right now acting in our lives here in 2021 as you are also actively working in the lives of those in 1517 and you are actively outside of time working in the lives of those in 2312. We can't even understand that. But you're outside of it, intervening in it with your power and your knowledge, and your presence. And God, we rest in that. We rest in knowing that we do not have to control our world. We don't even have to control ourselves. You are our Lord. What we are doing on a daily basis by your grace is we are just submitting ourselves to you, surrendering ourselves to you, Lead me, Lord. Guide me. Help us to see you for who you truly are. To not take for granted your power and your knowledge and your presence. But that we would abide there. And that those things are not inseparable from one another. Equally existent in who you are. God, we want to see you rightly. We know you are incomprehensible, but we also know that you are intimate. We want to see you rightly. And so help us today to see in your story that in the beginning, God, you exist, you're eternal, you're good. You're holy. May we be marveled at your existence. May it make us feel very small. That's the hope, is that, as John the Baptist said, that we would decrease so that you would increase. Let us not be the center of our universe, but let you be the center of our universe. Let us marvel at you, Lord. Lord. by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We close each of our services by an invitation to come to the table of communion. The table of communion. This is an invitation for us to continue on in worship. To continue on celebrating that pivotal moment in history where God, being all-powerful, knowing everything that he knows and being present everywhere at all times in his fullness. In his plan and according to his will, he sent his son Jesus to a cross. And he sent his son Jesus there in order for him to pour out his wrath upon his son so that God would be satisfied in paying the penalty of sin death, and in his wrath being satisfied for those who believe in Jesus, God does not condemn them anymore. God does not pour out his wrath towards them anymore, but rather invites them in as adopted children to play in his backyard, to enjoy all of his creation, and to ultimately enjoy him as their God and them as his people. It all hinges on the cross. It all comes down to this moment in history, and this moment in time, where Jesus Christ breaks his body and he sheds his blood, so that you and I don't have to, so that we don't have to. And so communion is for believers to honor that, to worship, and to remember, and to let our souls be filled up To the point of overflowing and satisfied, saying, Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. So let's partake together, remembering his broken body and his shed blood as we continue on in worship. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At